the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey. There is a new coronavirus variant that is being spoken of right now. I saw Dr. Fauci talking about it and others. It is called Omicron. Did I get that right? Omicron? I think Omicron. My my boys feel like it sounds like a Pokemon character. They're I, like, that's such a cool name, Mom. <laughs> I actually think it, this is this is dating us. This is an age deal because your, your kids see it as Pokemon. I think it sounds like a Transformer. Transformer. That's what I thought, too. I agree with you. Yes. Yes. And so, uh, you know, we had the Delta variant. Now we've got this new variant, and uh, you could probably, if you watch the news today, a little bit earlier today, President Biden delivered some remarks about it. Uh, Aubrey, what I'm seeing on social media right now, and I'm, I'm curious as you read about it. Now there's still a lot of um, a lot of people are trying to say, "Hey, this may actually not be a big deal. We just right, have our eyes right, on it." But others right. are sounding the alarm. Uh, the Today Show today, I would say that I was watching, was pretty. Uh, uh, they were they went off the deep end a little bit, uh, oh, asking no. if we need to start double masking and oh, if other no. things are coming. Aubrey, I, I don't know if this is a boy who cries wolf scenario for me, yeah. but I'm having a hard time having any concern about this whatsoever. And I don't know if I'm right about that or not. I'm curious where other people are at. But where are you at as you hear about this? I mean, I, I just don't want to jump to any like, a fear-based conclusion until we have more information. And we know that there have been several variants so far and they haven't, they haven't seemed to like cause us to need to go back to a worldwide shutdown. Now I know right. that there's some news out of Europe that they're getting a little bit tighter on some of their uh, restrictions right now. And so I don't know what's going to happen, but I currently just feel like yeah, I mean, okay, we know this. We know that this virus mutates. Mm -hmm. We know that there are other variants. There's actually probably a lot of variants that we don't even realize right now. And so right. let's not panic until there's a reason to. And I I might be naive here, Brian, but I tend to think this is not going to be any worse than some of the other variants right. that we've seen. It, you made an interesting statement there, too. Let's not panic until there's a reason to. I'm not sure that I'm going to believe that there's a reason to anymore. Yeah, and that's where I think yeah. a lot of people are at. And that may end yeah. up biting us in the end. I can't imagine a scenario. Like, here's the deal. You and I have said it. Uh, we're vaccinated. Uh, yeah. I, I had a great talk with someone at church yesterday, right? We were talking in the lobby. That's what you do when you're at church. Just kind of yeah. cut it up in the lobby a little bit. Yeah. And we were talking about masks and we were talking about all of this stuff. And, and I, he said something that I was just like, yep, that's where I'm at. It was, it was this. He goes, uh, 
I just think we need to get to the point that goes, I'm going to respect you if you want to wear a mask. Like, mm. you you wear your mask. I'm not going to mock you. It's not yeah. going to be a political thing. Yeah. I'm going to respect your choices. If you want to keep distance, if you want to stay home, I'm going to respect that. Like, yeah. we need to stop shaming people for being cautious. Mm. Uh, but the flip side also needs to be true that if I don't feel the need to yep. wear a mask or if I am yep. I feel I'm vaccinated and I feel ready to kind of get back into normal life, that that needs to be embraced, too. And I just feel like... That's where I'm at, too. And as I, I also think everyone's kind of tired of pronouncements from kind of up on high, right? Like, oh, we have to do this now and we do this. And, you know, you and I live in a state right now that is only one of six states that still has an indoor mask mandate. And there's yeah. even some uh, some studies right now that suggest the states with the masks are the ones struggling right now. So you don't mm. know what to believe. And you're reading about this. And, and again, I think I go back to the boy who cries wolf a little bit and just going, I, I just having a hard time getting worked up about something and we'll see where this goes. Are you good with kind of my stance there or where are I, you at? I mean, and what do you feel? I feel like the reality is, and you and I have been saying this for a while, like part of the reason that we all, those of us who got vaccinated, got vaccinated is because we understand it. And it, this is even true of people who didn't get vaccinated, but like, at some point, we are going to just have to learn to live with the coronavirus and right. its variants. And it can't be this like massive ordeal and panic every time a new variant comes out. Like at some point, this has to be the thing that we learn to live with and survive through like the flu or something else. And so I I, I, uh, I am 100 percent with you about like this doesn't need to be a massive deal every single time. Mm. I'm also willing to say, okay, if it seems worse than the uh, initial coronavirus, I'll eat my words here. But it just mm -hmm. seems like these variants do not have to make the massive news splash that they're making. And part of it is it's like, okay, news channels, are you guys just reaching right now for <laughs> yes. news related to the coronavirus? Because then your ratings go up. Like that's the kind of skepticism I'm at now. And I, I do think you're you're right, Brian, that we are going to have to get to the point where we can just begin to respect, be okay with people's decisions regarding COVID, what they feel is best for them and their community and their families. And then let's just all move forward. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know when that happens. I don't know how that happens. But it certainly feels like these really strong stances we're taking one way or the other. We're going to have to just let those go, breathe a little bit, and move forward if we hope to see life go back to at least a new normal of some kind. Yeah, so Omicron, get used to hearing that word. Omicron! Omicron. Get, uh, but we're interested to see. I think this is now the, the next wave here that we're going to be hearing about and people are going to be debating and we're going to have to live with. Well, coming up next, Dr. Mark Moore, author and the teaching pastor of Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona. He's written a new book called Quest 52, a 15-minute-a-day year-long pursuit of Jesus. Excited to talk to Dr. Mark Moore about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the teaching pastor of Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona, and the author of many books, including a new book called Quest 52, a 15-minute-a-day, year-long pursuit of Jesus. His name is Dr. Mark Moore. Mark, how are you doing today? 
Fantastic. We're, we're here in Phoenix, America, where the sun always shines. Oh, very <laughs> uh, this interview is now over because I'm just <laughs> kidding. So, uh, and Mark, you, you're, you're in Phoenix, but why don't you tell us, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Yeah, you and I were chatting a little bit before the show. Uh, I was a college professor for 22 years at a small school. Uh, that all, all, we, all we did at Ozark Christian College was produce pastors and teachers. Wow. So at about the 22-year mark, I, I got an offer from this ridiculously large church in Phoenix called Christ Church of the Valley. What attracted me, though, was not the size of the church. But it was the first church I'd had a job offer at where they actually prioritized lost people over mm-hmm. found people. Wow. Yeah. So um, I could I could tell you some funny, funny stories about what that looks like. But but basically, we're going to prioritize a person that has not been connected to Jesus, has not been connected to the church. We just baptized a guy, the 82 year old uh, Jew. We, we met him in the gym. And we're tell, sharing the gospel with him. He goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus was a Jew. <gasps> and, and he just fell in love with a service. He fell in love with Jesus mm. um, and has hopped on to Core 52, which is the precursor to Quest 52, loving getting into God's word on a daily basis. So mm. my my job here is to help our church connect with Scripture in a way that makes sense to people who are disconnected from church. Oh, I absolutely love that. I feel like we're going to have to, ha- we want to talk about your book, Quest 52, a 15 minute a day year long pursuit of Jesus. We're going to have to have you maybe later on in the show. We're going to talk more about that because I love that your church has such a um, evangelism mindset. That's very, very cool. But let's, let's do dive into the book, Mark, Quest 52, a 15 minute a day year long pursuit of Jesus. Tell us why you decided to write this. Well, in in a sense, this has been um, a culmination of my life. What I taught primarily at at the college was the first five books of the New Testament, the Gospels and the Book of Acts. Mm. And I was just kind of the Jesus guy. And so I I didn't have a book that went through chronologically the life of Jesus. So I created this textbook for our students. And over the years, I became kind of the go-to guy on Jesus, even though as I say in the introduction of the book, I feel like I'm one of the apostles in the front of the boat after Jesus calmed the storm. They've been they've been following him for a better part of a year, and they ask, when he calmed the storm, they ask, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Yeah. So I felt like in some way I'm I, I am an expert in the Gospels, but I'm a fellow pilgrim first and foremost. And so I wanted to create a work that wasn't technical or theological in nature, but it was really practical. How can people disconnected to the church find a connection to Jesus? So we just walk through the life of Jesus. It's not exactly chronological, but it kind of goes from birth to resurrection. Yeah. Uh, And Mark, I'm intrigued by the daily portion of it. Um, So it's 15 minutes a day. Why do you think it's so important for people to spend time in the word, in their quiet time uh, every day? What talk to us about the daily portion of this? Well, actually, let me pull back on every day, because statistically, four days a week is is the the magic marker four days a week or more. There there has been a couple of different studies done that were longitudinal studies over years and years and over 200,000 people some Christians, some not. 
And they ask questions about your life, like uh, marital happiness, drug addiction, employment. What they found is that people who are Bible engaged, meaning they read the Bible four days a week or more, and it could be five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just reading the Bible four days a week or more changes the stats of your life. So Bible engaged people have over 60% less drunkenness over 70% less sexual immorality, over 75% less gambling addictions. And it's not just the negatives of, you know, the Bible saying, don't do that and don't do this. It's actually the positives. When when the word of God gets into your heart and you go, oh, I am a child of God. Oh, I, I do have the power of the spirit. That changes not only your own personal behavior, but the relationships around you. Mm. So the first book, Core 52, went through all the Bible. Quest 52 really is is in some ways a reaction to our COVID isolation and Mm. the division in our nation and in our churches. The thing that unites us is Jesus Christ. Amen. And there's a lot of people who don't like the church. Fair enough. I get it. I have had some church experiences that weren't very good to me, but I don't know of a person who doesn't respect Jesus Christ. So why don't we spend some time focusing on him? Like, can we just give a year to Jesus after the two years we've had with COVID? Mm. (laughs) Wow, that's good. That's a great question for all of us, Mark. I I would love to know too. I I don't want you to... give too many spoilers, but what will we find in this book that might surprise us about Jesus? Oh, yeah. So that's a long list. <laughs> Here, here's a couple things that might surprise you. Do you know that Jesus got mad five times? Like he, lo- he, he lost his stuffing, flipping tables over in the temple, um, rebuking the disciples. He actually called one of his best friends Satan. Mm-hmm. So he does have a temper, but what set it off, if you lay all five side by side, there's only one thing that made Jesus mad. And that's when people who knew God stood in the way of people who didn't know God. Mm. It's actually, you know, if you listen to our sermons, and I'm guilty of this, we, we tend to rail against things that other people are doing. And Jesus just didn't do that. He, he railed against people standing in the way of people who were doing things that kept them from God. So that was, that's one surprising thing. And another surprising thing is Jesus. So here's one of the things that Jesus did consistently. He called people to be his disciples. So what does it mean to be a disciple? And we'll have a, a litmus test. When you read your Bible, you go to church, you give a tithe. None of that was Jesus' litmus test. Well, he does mention those things. But far and away, the most important thing Jesus calls us to do is simply to be with him. Mm. Just come spend time with me. Mm. And Mark, what would you say is the biggest obstacle then? Because like everything you're saying, I agree with. And I think everybody would be like, yes, I need this. But yet we know so often in my own life or people we talk to, they uh, we don't spend time with Jesus. What's the obstacle? Why don't we do it? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Brian, because we're actually preaching a series right now called 276. Mm. 276 times in the Bible, God is called Father. Hmm. You want to guess how many of those times are in the Old Testament? Hmm. It's three. Wow. Three times. And those three times, he's not called your dad. He's called like the father of the nation, kind of a George Washington figure. Hmm. 273 times in the New Testament, he's called your personal father. 
nearly 200 of those are Jesus himself. Hmm. In fact, the greatest cluster of father in the, in the verbiage of Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount. If you take all the these ands away, like the articles and particles in the language, the most common word in the Sermon on the Mount is father. Wow. And he says it 18 times in, wow. in a number of different ways. What, what, he's, what he's trying to get to, to us to see is God, God is our father. He's our Abba dad. Yeah. If you perceive God as a father, that changes. It changes your prayer life. Mm. It changes your worship. It changes the way you connect with groups. And so I, I think, Brian, the biggest barrier for people uh, spending time with God is the impression that he is far off and disinterested or he's angry at us. If we could just see God as father, and this is, this is, here's another interesting stat. I don't want to get side railed too much, but Paul, 78 times the apostle Paul calls God father. 76 of those times he includes Jesus in the sentence. Hmm. It was as if calling God father is such a radical concept that like only Jesus can say it. And if I'm going to say it, I have to include him in the sentence because yeah. I don't have the authority to actually. Wow. <laughs> wow. That to me is the biggest barrier of people coming to know God. Mm. And that's why they need quest. They don't need quest 52, but they need to come to Jesus and quest 52 can point the way Love that. to experience God as father. That's a good word. Again, the book is Quest 52, a 15 minute a day, year long pursuit of Jesus. Go pick up the book. I want to ask you about your role at the church. You were describing uh, it earlier that Christ Church of the Valley, what drove you to that church, what attracted you to being on staff at that church is, uh, let me put words in your mouth, that, that it was the first church you've been a part of that was focused on reaching lost people. And and can you unpack that a little bit? Like, why did that attract you? But also, how does that church look different than maybe most the other churches that we're used to? Yeah, so uh, Christ Church of the Valley, when I came in 2012, had 17,500 people in attendance on two campuses. We now have uh, post-COVID numbers are 29.5 on 12 campuses. So it's it's huge. It's just it's it's a city. But we don't think of ourselves as big because we don't measure the number of people in the seats. We number the percentage of people in the community. So we are reaching less than. 0.5% 0.5% of the Phoenix Valley. Hmm. We have a long way to go to actually reach this valley for Jesus Christ. And we're, you know, we need all the other great churches to do it. But yeah. Brian, what that means is, uh, first of all, when you come into the church, we're going to make it a comfortable place for you. We have on only two of our buildings, is there a cross? And they were buildings we inherited from other churches. We, we want to make it a place that feels normalized. Now, we're not, we preach the cross. We don't d- typically display the cross as a religious symbol. We don't use vocabulary. So here, here's an, exa- an example of our vocabulary. In one of my first sermons, I said, we want to talk about your relationship with Christ. And I come off stage and one of the pastors, kind of the executive said, hey, we don't use that phrase. Mm-hmm. I said, what, are you, what are you talking about? We don't talk about people's relationship with Christ? No. I, I said, well, like, are we even Christians? He goes, well, listen, listen, when's the last time someone came to you and said, we need to talk about your relationship? Well, it was my wife and it was a bad night. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get a dude, he's barely like he's he's just barely gotten over the hangover. He comes into church, he had a terrible weekend as a girlfriend or live-in lover said, We gotta talk about a relationship. And so he's beat up already and he comes to church and he hears that. So what we will monitor our vocabulary, we'll monitor the words of a song, we monitor our architecture, our color schemes the length of a service, like we are, we're an hour service. And when you walk out into the lobby, we've got coffee for you. We have food service. We have the sports uh, channels, uh, like all our TVs in the lobby are tuned to sports channels. Why? Because we want it to be normalized, especially for men who tend to be the decision makers of the direction the family's going to go. So we'll cater to the normalcy of a guy's life. Um, and Mark, I'm hearing you talk about this as a woman. So let me, I don't, I don't want to push back. I think it's absolutely incredible. But what about the women who walk in? They're single moms. They maybe don't have a husband who's making a decision at home. There's not a really uh, meaningful father figure. How are they being catered to at your church? Thank you for asking that, Aubrey, because that, that is a common question. And the, here's the simple answer. There is no woman who comes who feels like there's a chauvinistic bent that would disrespect her. Mm. At the same time, here's the longer answer. A woman came up to me one day, clearly a Christian woman. So, I mean, you know, I'm going to I'm going to prioritize the lost person. And she goes, you need to change your church. You need to have women's ministry. Well, we don't have men's ministry. We don't have women's ministry. We have groups. Okay, And you can find a woman's group. You can find a men's group. But we don't cater to any particularist ideology. But she said, you need to have these women's ministries. So I love your church, but if you, you're just, you're, you're doing too much to attract men, how do the women feel about it? So I, I don't know. Let me ask. Random couple comes up. I, I, I wish I had a scripted this. It would have been great, but totally at random. I asked this couple, I said to this woman, how do you feel about our church having color scheme and language that draws in men? And she says, listen, I, she was with her. She was with her husband. She said, I, I've tried to get him to go to three other different churches. He won't. If you can get my husband to sit and take communion with me, I don't care what you do. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And statistically, if, if a woman comes to Christ, it's about 30% of the time the whole family comes to Christ. If a man comes to Christ, the father of the household comes to Christ, it goes from 30% to 93%. Hmm. So if I'm selling widgets... And the widgets sell, if I sell to a men, the, I, I sell five more widgets, I'm going to market to men. Yeah. And this has nothing to do with disrespecting women at all. We have women pastors on our staff. I know that will offend some people, but um, w- we do. We just, we treat women with great respect and mm, honor. That's great. Again, Dr. Mark Morris, teaching pastor at Christ Church of the Valley, also the author of a new book called Quest 52, a 15-minute-a-day year-long pursuit. And Mark, getting back to the book, you said something really interesting. Uh, you said that the more that we learn about Jesus, the less you feel like you really know him. So kind of this idea that, you know, kind of as you're learning, you're like, wow, there's so much more to know. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I've been married for 35 years. I feel the same thing with my wife. (laughs) There are layers in relationships that when you uncover one layer, there's more to discover. Mm. And it reminds me of a passage in Proverbs, which it says it's it's 
God's authority to conceal thing. It's a king's authority to discover. It's like God is playing hide and seek with himself. Mm. And I was talking to a physicist about that. He actually was an elder of my very first church who had worked with Albert Einstein on a project. Um, so he was at that level. Mm. And he said, physics is like you open a door and there's a corridor of doors to be opened. And I feel like that in my marriage. And I feel like that with my relationship with Jesus, mm. the way he heals people is so informative, but you, you get into one healing and there's all these other questions. Yeah. The way he talks about in parables, he, he actually used parables more to conceal truth than reveal truth. Mm. And, and like, how do you do that? Or take the, the resurrection. What is that? Like, I know the bodily resurrection means he rose from the dead and that I will be raised from the dead. But what will my body look like? Will wow. I be able to pass through walls like he did? Will I be able to defy gravity like he did? One door opened leads to a corridor of discoveries. Mm. Man, that's really good. As I think about that and tying it into marriage, I think that's really powerful. Again, the new book is called Quest 52. A 15-minute-a-day, year-long pursuit of Jesus. Dr. Mark Moore is the author of that. You can learn more about Mark and his books at markmore.org. That's markmore.org. You can also find him on Twitter, at markmore330. That's at markmore330. Mark, it's great to meet you. Thanks for spending so much time with us, and we hope uh, that hopefully this book sells over Christmas. It seems like a great Christmas book. Uh, for people. So anyway, Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Aubrey. Thank you. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Frum. And we're so glad that you're with us here today. Well, Brian, we didn't get to talk about this story last week, but a massive update in the Ahmad Arbery case. A Georgia jury on Wednesday found Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan guilty of murdering Ahmad Arbery in February of 2020. All three men will be sentenced to life in prison and still face some other charges as well. Um, for those of you who don't remember the story, Arbery was 25 years old. He was running through a neighborhood. And basically, these three men grabbed their gun, chased him in a pickup truck, eventually overtook Arbery and shot him. They later claimed that they believed he had been running away from burglarizing a nearby house. And it became a really, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It became a wild media story as right. people were demanding justice. And so this feels like a good moment again for the court system where um, these men were were uh, considered guilty. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wanted to talk about a couple of things. Both Ahmad's mother and father were there and shared their reaction. I think it's really, really powerful because, of course, his parents were most devastated by this. And so let's go ahead and listen to some of um, what Ahmad's dad had to say. For real, all life matters. All life. Yes. Not just black children. We don't want to see nobody go through this. Amen. I don't want to see no daddy watch the kid get left and shot down like that. That's right, Ma. So it's all our problem. All it's all our problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, let's keep fighting. Let's keep fighting. Let's keep doing it and making this place a better place for yeah. all human beings. Amen. Thank all you. human beings. Yeah. Amen. Everybody. Amen. Love everybody. Love everybody. Love everybody. Right, all human beings need to be treated equally. Yeah. yeah. 
Thank we ain't finna conquer this lynching. Today is a good day. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, you know, this is really powerful because uh, Reverend Al Sharpton was there and he said, you know, look, this is a sign that black lives do matter. We've got a lot more battles to fight, that this was an important battle today. And then I, I don't think Arbery's father was contradicting, contradicting him, but he did go on to say, but every life matters, too. Mm-hmm. This can't just mm-hmm. be about little black boys like this shouldn't happen anywhere in the united states which i think could possibly be a pretty controversial thing to say but it's from his dad so you're going to take that seriously what did you think when you heard this brian yeah a couple different things about the case one is um and i i know that uh this hasn't always been the case but but we've talked a lot about the judicial system right the kyle rittenhouse case last week yeah uh the ahmaud arbery case and from the people i trust who seem to know a lot more about law than i do the justice system appears to have worked. Yeah. And, um, you know, the fears that these three guys would get off, you know, with some, you know, were kind of self-defense were they, they were, they were claiming self, but also kind of citizens arrest, uh, that the jury saw through that and saw through it quickly. And so we can be emboldened a little bit here that the justice system worked, that, that people who should be going to prison are going to prison. Yeah. Uh, so that's one for me. And I appreciate, like you said, uh, the people who have the greatest stakes in this are Ahmad Arbery's um, mom and dad. Yeah. And the dad here saying, using his platform to say, hey, today, this has been, nobody should ever have to go through this, mm. but that this is a good day for, for, because justice has risen and we need to get to the place where we value everybody. Yeah. Where we look at each other. Uh, and, and Aubrey, this is, this is very biblical that, yeah. um, the you know i know we throw around lots of phrases about uh, other things but at the essence we need to value everybody for the sake of just humanity not for their race or their gender or their whatever yeah. their how much money they make or whatever else but that every person is valuable because of who they've been made by god right. because That's of what right. their identity is yeah. and therefore when lives are taken or when people are abused those who do the abusing, those who do the taking of a life or whatever else it might mm-hmm. be, must be held accountable regardless of their race, regardless yeah. of their money, regardless right. of their power. Right. And so I think this is a good day, a, a good verdict. And I think that we can hear the words of, of Ahmad Arbery's dad there and go, OK, I think he, he's speaking from a lot of pain right there and makes a great point that, yeah. that we must get as, as a culture back to valuing all life. Yeah. Uh, whether you think you're better than somebody or worse, whatever, that right. all life is valuable because all people have been created in the very image of our holy God. Mm, that's good, Brian. That's good. Ahmad Arbery's mom, Wanda Cooper, uh, was quoted as saying, it's been a long fight. It's been a hard fight, but God is good. Mm. And I, you know, I, that has stuck out to me because here's a mom who lost her son in the most horrific way. Yes. And- On video. Yes. 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 Again and again and again. It's been shared nationally. I'm sure internationally as well. Um, Really, her son became someone who sort of galvanized a lot of racial justice conversations in 2020 in the States and and was murdered. I mean, it's it's just Mm -hmm. awful. And yet here she is proclaiming this has been a hard fight, but God is good. That Mm -hmm. brings tears to your eyes. Like, I, I can't imagine Facing and holding the grief of my son, like you said, seeing it again and again and again, that devastating loss. 
And then being able to claim in the middle of it, God is good. Mm. She also says, I never thought this day would come. And so I love that in that, um, you know, just speaking about this emotionally, I love that in that tender way, like this mama's heart got her prayer answered to see these men um, experience a guilty verdict. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, I, I imagine she would have said God is good either way. But you know that this was such a relief for her because had they been... um, you know, declared innocent, I think it would be much harder to declare God is good. I'm not saying she wouldn't have. She seems like a strong woman. But I, you know, to be able to have that gift, I think, for her, justice for her son in a situation that is just so awful. I'm I'm grateful. Like, my mama's heart goes out to hers, and I'm grateful oh my for gosh. that. I just can't imagine. And like yeah. you said, you you would like to think that we would all in that situation be able to declare God good, whether justice prevailed or not because yeah. we we have hope in ultimate justice right uh, but but there is something that says god you know give just like we you know make it right and someone mm-hmm. not make it right because her son's not coming back mm-hmm. but but give this family justice and so yeah. uh you're happy for that and then yeah. like you said to, for them to be able to get up and be, say god is good and for the dad to be able to get up and say let's oh. let's change how we treat people Amazing. i just think uh, you know, hopefully this is another situation where, again, it doesn't make it right because he's right. never coming back. But hopefully some good, some change, some yeah. things can come out of this. But I just think for individuals out there listening right now and for you and for I, it's again a reminder. What what do we what is it about a person that that causes us to give them value? Mm, right. What What good. is it? And it has to be way down deep in who God has made them, who yes. created them and not you know, not what their race is or what their gender is or how much money they have or their job or whatever else. But too often we as a culture, that's what we ascribe for people. Mm. Instead, as Christians, we say, no, that person is valuable because they've been created in the image of God. And if we could live out of that, it will start to change things culturally. Yeah, that's good. That's a good word, Brian. Well, let's continue to pray for Ahmad Arbery's family, continue to pray for social justice in our nation and for God's will to be done. And like you said, Brian, for us to see each other as um, inherently valuable because we've all been created in God's image. Well, coming up next, your church family has been mourning throughout 2020 and 2021. Here's some tips on how you can help. We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. And Brian, you know, we talk about some really fun, funny things on this show sometimes. And then we tend to talk about things that are very real and very heavy. And and we cannot deny that 2020 and 2021 has been a really difficult year for a lot of people. And not all of us want to continually remember how difficult it has been. But the reality is, is that many people in your church, in my church, in our neighborhoods have lost loved ones this year, have um, lost jobs this year, have had a lot of financial pain this year, and need support in a way that perhaps we haven't had to offer support before because we've never been through a pandemic before. Mm -hmm. Um, I was reading something over at Christianity Today, and they said that the numbers really are staggering, that um, there are 750,000 Americans who have died from COVID-19. Research suggests that one in five Americans lost a loved one due to the pandemic. And then, of course, 
there are non-COVID deaths and non-COVID losses that happened in the middle of the pandemic as well. And really, some of the statistics are saying that millions of people in the States are mourning. And the question is, what can we, Brian, you and I are church leaders. A lot of our listeners are church goers or ministry leaders of some kind, or just neighbors trying to love God and love their neighbors. How can we walk alongside people who are hurting? And you guys know, some of our listeners know, like Kevin and I are in that category. His mom died just a few weeks ago of COVID-related illness. And so this is real that... um, the world is grieving. And I think we are, all of us, wanting to get back to a new normal, all of us really wanting to celebrate Christmas, all of us wanting to experience joy. But I think hand in hand with that is the reality that there are a lot of empty chairs at our tables this Christmas. That's right. And we can't, I think we can't just brush that aside. Like I think actually it makes the joy of Christmas and the delight of Christmas even more real, the hope of Christmas. We're going to talk about Advent later on. The hope of Advent, even more real when we acknowledge the pain. That's right. Because we see what a like an incredible hope we have in Jesus. That in the in the reality of just absolute horrific death and pain and loss and suffering, there's still hope. Like God yeah. is still making all things new. And yeah. so anyway, I. There's a couple stories that I wanted to talk about, but over at churchfuel.com, they had five pastors for, excuse me, five tips for pastors walking a congregation through grief that I thought we could share with our listeners, because even if you're not a pastor, even if you're not leading a church, these are really, really helpful tips for all of us, either um, going through our own distress or walking with other people who are going through their distress. And the first thing that they mention is simply acknowledge the pain. Um, when people are grieving, it's really natural to want to gloss over the pain. I think sometimes we think if we bring up the loss, then we're going to make it worse. But the reality is people are carrying that loss no matter what. And so you're not going to change the loss, right? You're not going right. to change how someone's feeling about it. But acknowledging the pain, though uncomfortable and awkward, can be a really helpful way to um, come alongside people who are hurting. Yeah, I think that's the most important one, right? It's yeah. start by going... Uh, hey, there! I'm acknowledging that this is hard for you. Whether yeah. you've lost somebody or not, you've whatever. To try to talk people out of their pain and their suffering mm. is not helpful. Right. Uh, but to instead acknowledge. Number two, they give is this one: provide support uh, with so many different kinds of grief. You'll need to offer various kinds of support. People have different needs when they're grieving. While some may need spiritual encouragement or someone to talk with, others might need tangible support. That's mm-hmm. where you get into like giving meals or yep. GoFundMe pages or yep. whatever else. Uh, and so churches become great spots for that. They become good um, kind of clearing houses Absolutely. for people in their congregation. They can't do this for everybody, but for people within their congregation going, okay, what's the, what is the type of support that my neighbor needs, my church, mm-hmm. the person in my church needs? And then yeah. can we mobilize people to kind of meet that need as opposed to just a, hey, I'll pray for you. Prayer is very important, but mm-hmm. there, there might be other needs as well. And so taking the time and the energy for that to help provide the correct support. Yeah. And I actually, I'll, I'll just tag on to that uh, briefly. I 
I think this is when the church is at its best too, that they come alongside people with meal trains or with other, you know, uh, actual material needs that need to be met. And people just experiencing meal trains from our own church when Kevin's mom died, like you feel so loved and cared for. And it is really, really powerful when a church does that. And I would say too, like, to go the extra mile, even if someone says they don't need help, go ahead and like send them a Grubhub gift card or something like that is a way to walk with people who are hurting. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Number three, I think this is a really good one. Be honest about your own grief, especially if you're a pastor or a leader and you're walking with other people in pain, you might need to stop and acknowledge that like you have sadness. You're going through a difficult season and you don't have to necessarily say that in front of everybody, but be with the Lord, be with your really good friends, be with your people and acknowledge your own grief as well. And I think talking about it publicly on a, in a way that you feel safe really makes a difference to your congregation so that they know you're grieving with them, right? They're not alone in this. They're not the only ones hurting that you're going through grief together. I think it can be really powerful for a leader to do for their congregation. Yeah. Here's an interesting one. And this is for pastors again. Uh, and they acknowledge that this might seem like a weird way to handle grief, but it says conduct a survey mm. uh, because they said this might seem like a brash way to handle grief, but it's one of the most caring things you can do. Don't wait until tragedy strikes to find out what your congregation would need in the time of one. So asking in advance, what would you need when hard times come? But also, Aubrey, we found this during the pandemic. I wish I'd done it sooner was just asking Instead of trying to guess where people were at, like, oh, yeah. have you have you lost somebody? Have you had yeah. COVID? I'm just speaking of COVID, right? Right. Have you had COVID? Uh, have you lost a job? And and surveys help us uh, uncover the needs that we just might not know are there. So here's yeah. what it gets at, right? All of us are really good at hiding needs. Like we might be crumbling and we put that smile on our face for an hour on Sunday morning or whatever, but giving people the opportunity to go, What's going on in your life? How can we help? Uh, it's the old knowledge is power. So how are you going to figure out what's going on in your church, in your mm. neighborhood, in other places? I think their thing about conducting a survey is simply saying this, be creative and try to yeah. uncover as much yeah. as you can. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And then the uh, the fifth tip, which I think is really connected to that, is plan individual and collective follow-up. So, you know, we have follow-up processes for people who are first-time guests, right? Or first-time givers to make sure that they don't fall through the cracks. But what about following up with people who are grieving? Do we circle back mm-hmm. with them? Do they? Do we know they have the support they need? And that sort of goes back to this survey. Like if we know who is experiencing grief, then we can know how to follow up with them periodically. I think that's actually a really, really good word because I think sometimes initially, you know, churches come around somebody right away and it's so powerful. But then three months later, of course, everyone has moved on with their lives. That's okay. But to have some type of system where you check in with these uh, people who are hurting every few months, hey, are you okay? Can the church do anything? Do we, what, what can we do to help you? Is a really, really meaningful way to walk yeah. with people who are in pain. And I think ultimately, Aubrey, we have to ask, is my church... Uh, a safe place for people to be in pain and to acknowledge Mm. that they're struggling. Mm. Like that's kind of one of the core issues. It goes back to the whole acknowledgement. Are are we even a safe place where people go, you know what? I can be honest there. I can do that. And so I, you know, it asks, it causes you to ask some very fundamental questions about even the very structure of your church in this setting. Uh, But think about your family. Can people come to you and be like, Hey, I'm not doing well. Mm. Uh, And, and if you, if the, if you're not sure about that, then, and the answer to that is probably no. 
yeah. and, and you got to kind of figure out some changes. Yep. That's such a good pastoral word. Thanks for that, Brian. Well, coming up next, we're going to find out how you can celebrate Advent with your family and why Advent matters more this year than ever. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And it is almost, well, we just, not almost, it is officially it is. Advent. The first yes. Sunday of Advent was yesterday. Brian, does your church do anything particularly special at Advent or does your family do anything particularly special at Advent? So the church does a lot of um what a lot of churches do, right? I preach an Advent series. So this mm-hmm. this year we're preaching through kind of characters of the Christmas story. So I oh, preached that's about, cool. talked about Mary yesterday. Oh, I and, love Mary. Uh, you know, so we do that. We do the uh, the Advent wreath with the candles where have mm-hmm. someone come up and read, um, you know, the passage yesterday was out of Isaiah chapter nine. And so trying to acknowledge that it's uh, it's an important time of year. I'm interested to have this conversation because we've never really done anything as a family. Like I didn't grow up in a kind of an advent. Yeah. um, And it's just not been part of my family's tradition. So it is interesting to think about what can families do, Mm -hmm. but that's what we did at our church. How about at Renewal Church? What'd you guys do? Yeah, that's basically the exact same thing. We have our our advent wreath with the candles. We have an advent reading. We do an, we're in an advent series right now about, you know, God being with us, Emmanuel Mm -hmm. and, we begin to sing some Christmas songs on Sunday morning, which is like my favorite part of this Advent season. Um, but our family has done an Advent tradition for a very long time. And Brian, I don't know how this even started. Like, I don't even know when we began to do this. But we, you know, growing up, we didn't really do Advent either, except we had an Advent calendar where you sort of counted down the you know, the days until mm-hmm. Christmas, but that was sort of more about, that wasn't really about Jesus. That was about like the presents coming, yes. you know what I yes. mean? <laughs> oh, that was about like opening the door and getting a piece of candy. Um, but what we have done as a family, so my, my grandparents made these tiny little ornaments, Christmas ornaments when they were still alive that were passed down to me. They're wooden ornaments, hand-painted, handmade, very, very sweet. Kevin and our oldest son, Eli, made a little Christmas tree. And we hang those ornaments each day for Advent. The boys Mm. participated. But the other thing that we do, and this is the part that I don't know how this started, but it has become like a beloved family tradition. Every night at dinner during Advent, we turn off every light in the house. And um, we, uh, so it's pitch black. And then we have this little phrase that we say, the world was in darkness and we were living in our sin. But then Jesus came to be the, and one of the boys is in charge of lighting a candle. And as soon as the candle lights, we all yell at the top of our lungs, light of the world. <laughs> and then we usually read a little bit of scripture and, and say a prayer. And then they hang up that their Advent ornament. But I, we've done that for a really long time. And it is so special because it just marks what this season is, which I, I, you know, now more than ever, Brian, this season of longing and waiting and darkness until Jesus comes. And I think we feel it seasonally as like, it's dark at like four o'clock now. Uh, We feel it with the weather getting colder. And then I think we feel it because of 2020 and 2021 in a way we maybe never have, like there's a heaviness and we need the incarnation. We need the birth of Jesus. We need the light of the world to come. And yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling like, man, I need Advent more than I ever have. Yeah, let's go there because I do think um, that is true right now. And so 
Um, I like how you linked it also to just how dark it gets in the afternoon, right? There's that heaviness. Like right mm-hmm. now, this time of year, you're like, man, it gets dark at like 4.30. It's really hard. But there is this idea of the advent, the coming of Jesus light into the darkness that right now – our, our culture, things feel still dark. I know we've yeah. gotten used to COVID. Yeah. We've gotten used to kind of dirty politics and, and people being mean to each other and, mm. and sad that we've gotten used to that. Yeah. But it does feel like that that the hope of Advent, that the light into darkness is is more pronounced, the need for it more pronounced. I think it probably goes back to the old saying that uh, the darker the darkness, the brighter the light, right? Like, mm. uh, And so I do think there's this idea of like, man, things feel so hard. Things feel so heavy all the time. And I don't know if it's more of I just feel it, but um, th- that the light of Jesus feels that much more pronounced. Does that make sense? Is that kind yeah, of what, what we're that's feeling ex- these days? Yeah, I feel like that's you have just put like hit the nail on the head right there. That the light of Jesus is more pronounced because I think we understand pain and and suffering and hardship and just like yuckiness than we yeah. have in a very long time. And so it's that you're right. It makes the hope that much bigger, makes the promise of scripture that much bigger. It makes the the presence of Jesus that much more powerful. I also want to mention that it's been a week since the um that terrible tragedy yes. in uh, Waukesha, uh, Wisconsin. Um, with in, in the Christmas parade where someone drove a truck through the parade, killing several people, injuring several people and churches in the area really are beginning to offer messages of hope and forgiveness and healing their beginning Advent in a way. I, this is what we're talking about, like really beginning Advent in a way that um, is maybe deeper or more real than it even was last year because they've experienced this communal tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so, I, again, I bring that up, one, because I don't want to forget this tragic thing that happened. But also, you know, I think <laughs> we think that Christmas is happy and joyful and wonderful. And it is. Christmas is happy and joyful and wonderful. But we can't deny that um, the point is finding joy and wonder in the middle of darkness. And so when we celebrate Advent with our kids, we teach them like, yes, the world is in darkness. We're living in our sin and our brokenness, but Jesus is coming to be the light of the world. And that has so much, so much meaning. Yeah. I think you put that well. It's, this is not a desire for the darkness to go away. Obviously we desire darkness to go away, but but that's not an expectation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an eternal expectation, but in our, Kind of living here, it's not the expectation that all of a sudden, oh, this Advent, all of a sudden, everything's going to be made right. But it's the idea that in the midst of the darkness, Jesus is present, Jesus is at work, Jesus is powerful, and that ultimately we can point to – you know, the good news that Jesus, when he, uh, through his death and resurrection, has defeated the darkness, that yes, darkness does right. not win. Yes. Uh, with all of that knowledge, we can say, okay, we celebrate the coming of Jesus. Yeah. And Aubrey, the, the, there's also the idea of the second advent, right? Like yes. we now also look forward yes. to the, the, to Jesus's return and mm-hmm. his coming again. So there's the celebrating of him coming. And then the looking forward to him coming again. And, you know, I said earlier, Aubrey, that that my family, we haven't really done anything for Advent. And if you're like me, and I would still say it's never too late, right? It's never too late yeah. to talk about Advent, to talk about the importance of the coming of Jesus. You could get so lost in the Christmas craziness that mm. we just moved from 
thing to thing. I think it, it becomes a good reminder to go, okay, we, we're going to try something this this Christmas. We're going to do something a little bit different uh, just to, again, get our family focused on, on the good news of the coming of Jesus. Yeah, I love that. And with that, let's end by just sharing a few tips that you can uh, do with your family through the Advent. You can read Advent devotions as mm-hmm. a family. There's all kinds of guides online. Like this is not hard to look for. Um, you can find all kinds of beautiful Advent devotions to read every night or once a week or however you want to. You can create something called an Advent Jesse tree, which is basically like you get a fake tree or a real tree. You can even make a construction paper tree and you create small ornaments that correspond with Bible stories. Again, a lot of this stuff is online or available for purchase for you. You can make a prayer garland. We've done this in the past. It's been a really long time, but you cut out, you know, red and green construction paper if you want to or whatever color you want to and write the name of a family member, a friend, a ministry, Mm. a country, um, something that you're praying for. Hang the garland in your house as a decoration. And every day in December, you remove one of those paper strips and pray for whoever's name is on that strip of paper. I think that's a really, really good idea. Of course, you could do your own advent calendar like we do. You can use your Christmas cards as prayer reminders. You can create your own Advent wreath with candles. Lots of ways that you can lead your family in Advent this year so that they understand. Mm. Like, uh, Brian, is this a saying? The real reason for the season. The reason for the season. The reason for the season. (laughs) All right. Well, that's fun to start thinking about now that Advent has started. Coming up next, we're going to give you some ideas for having a better quiet time with the Lord. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Monday evening. Thanks so much for being here with us today. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm, and we love sending you home with something encouraging, inspiring, or challenging. Over at NIVBible.com, that's a new international version, Bible.com, they're talking about quiet times and, and some ways uh, we can go about having a meaningful quiet time. And one of the kind of notes that they say that I think is helpful is um, we need to remember that whatever we do in our quiet time, that really that is about forging, like you said, a closer relationship with Jesus Mm. and not about necessarily like checking something off your list, but um, really about spending time with the Lord so that your relationship with God grows more significantly, more meaningful, more intimate. Sometimes I do think the discipline of just checking it off your list is actually good. Sometimes Mm -hmm. practice Mm -hmm. comes, uh, practice builds that intimacy, right? But uh, the point is not to make it this legalistic thing or the thing you just have to get through, but something that's really a special time between you and the Lord. They offer some benefits of a quiet time that I thought we could, um, share with our listeners when they say quiet time builds Mm self-discipline that getting up every morning going to the gym or getting up every morning and reading your bible that all of that builds self-discipline which eventually builds character also says that it establishes a rhythm for our life um and i i like that i like that idea of having a regular cadence of of worship and and quiet time with the Lord yeah. keeps us more mindful of God's presence. I think it's what you were talking about, like throughout your day, um, 
if you've begun your day or ended your day as a time with Jesus, and you're more mindful of God's presence simply because you've taken the time to be with him. And then they give some tips on what we need for a good quiet time. Do you want to share some of those, Brian? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. That question we brought up earlier, what's the right time of day? Mm-hmm. Like you I think there needs to be in general um ideally a set apart time. And most people yeah. it's a morning thing, but I I know for me mornings work best for this reason Aubrey. Once my day gets going, uh and I don't want to make it seem like we're you and I are probably are I almost said perfect. Maybe even very good at this, but like once your day gets going, it can get away from you. If you're like, 100%. oh, I'm going to read my Bible later. I'm going to pray later. Later never actually comes. That's so, so yeah. But you might be a night person. You might be that person who's able to shut down and do this. That's fine. I think the answer is finding the time of day that works for you. So just because it's the morning for most people doesn't mean it has to be. But the question is, what's going to be that set apart time for you, Aubrey, yeah. that says, uh, you know what? Every day when I get up from bed, I'm going to do this. Every day before I go to bed, I'm going to do this. At lunchtime, I'm going to do this. I think mm-hmm. it's that regular rhythm. And then they ask, what's the best location? Great question. Where am I going to do this? I, you've spoken on this before, right? You've got uh, – am I remembering right? You kind of have a spot in your house that you, you kind of go to. Yeah, I have a little I have a little reading room with my favorite chair right by the fire. I mean, it's very idealistic for uh, – or very ideal for a quiet time, but it is my favorite chair. It's my favorite. It's my praying spot. It's where God and I meet and I love it. But you know, for you, it might be your desk at work. It might be, um, I don't know, the kitchen table. Like there are obviously various places, but I do think it's helpful to have a location so that you have as little distraction as possible. And there is something I think really powerful about that specific space that's set aside for you and God. For some reason, it makes it a little bit easier to return to that place because we are creatures of habit Mm -hmm. and it sort of becomes that custom in our life to go to our zone where we are with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, again, this is about building a practice. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, like you said, when I sit in this chair, my mind goes to spending time with God. Like there's something to that. And then what kind of structure should it have? That's the third question they ask. You don't need much more than 30 to 60 minutes. That's a lot for some of you. We might be talking five to 10 minutes, especially at the start. Uh, But I would say make sure there's Bible reading as a part of it. There's great Bible reading plans out there. And that prayer is a part of it so that you might be one of these people who can focus and pray, or maybe you need to journal. Maybe you need to walk around. Again, I think there's a rhythm to it that only you can decide. But when it comes to structure, I think that there needs to be, uh, there needs to be time in the word. There needs to be time in prayer and, uh, and how that functions for you, I think, uh, changes per person. Yep. That's, that's great, Brian. And again, you can always go through, you know, go to uh, the U version, the Bible app. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of devotional plans. You can, there's one, by the way, speaking of again, known, the known uh, Bible reading plan, you can start. There you go. Um, it, all kinds of resources available to you to begin spending time with the Lord. And, you know, even it's December almost, and we're beginning to think through the new year. Perhaps this becomes a, a, New Year's Eve resolution or New Year's resolution for you that you're going to kick off 2022 spending time, quiet time, Bible study, whatever you want to call it, time with the Lord um, at some point during your day. Like you said, Brian, doing some reading from scripture, doing some praying, perhaps journaling if you're a journaling person. But either way, you are spending some time alone with the Lord. You won't regret it. Uh, you may regret not doing it, but you certainly won't regret having more time and more intimacy with God. So we hope that encourages you today. 
And um, let us know if you do something in your own life that contributes to your relationship with the Lord. Uh, if you have a really meaningful, quiet time, share with us about that on social media so that we can all learn from your wisdom and your experience as well. And thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.